0: It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. All right. Welcome to the Rico. The New York Mets whip the Tukas of the Arizona Diamondbacks. They take three of four. They play the role of spoiler. And over the last three games of this series, game two, game three, game four, the Mets score 25 runs over three games. Does that make you feel good? Does that make any med fan feel like, ah, hey, that was fun. A lot of runs, a lot of offense. Screw the Diamondbacks. We're playing the role of spoiler. I don't think it makes anyone feel good other than, hey, have you invested two and a half hours watching a Met game? You won. And I still like that. I have realized that over the last few weeks, I have not cared very much about the standings in terms of the backward standings. The, hey, are they in the bottom six? Where are they in the draft lottery? I've sort of ignored it over the last few weeks. And I think a part of the reason why I've ignored it is that it's a lottery. (laughs) Is that, you know, being in the bottom five, six, seven, eight, really don't mean anything because there's a lottery system. So once the lottery happens, we'll see if the Mets keep their pick from dropping 10 slots. But until then, they play baseball every single night. I want to see them go out and win. And they were able to do that against Arizona. And, And it's funny They win three out of four, and they came a hit away from winning game one. So the Mets really could have had a party against the Arizona Diamondbacks in this four-game series. We'll go through these games. I'm going to actually make a case that Kodai Senga is a legitimate Cy Young candidate. We'll give our thoughts on Gary and Keith attacking Lavello and the Diamondbacks. Max Scherzer, season's over. And some quick thoughts on the offseason because there's been a lot of Yamamoto talk over the last couple of days. As far as David Stearns is concerned, because obviously that's the headline over the last few days. We have been waiting for this. We have almost assumed it was going to happen. There was a slight hesitation about a week and a half ago when I heard about David Stearns' wife being from Houston and wondering, does that give the Astros a chance to steal him away? But it has been reported, and I guess it hasn't been confirmed because the Mets haven't confirmed it, but... Jeff Passons reported, Joel Sherman's reported, Andy Martino's or everybody's reporting that the Stearns thing is done. He's making $10 million a year. He signed a five-year deal coming up, depending on when you're listening in a day or so, actually really we'll post it late Friday night into Saturday morning. We will have an entire podcast devoted to David Stearns, the higher, what does it mean? We'll dive into his resume, the good, the bad, the future of Buck Showalter. So, I don't want to ignore the fact that David Stearns is the team president, but on this podcast, we're going to stick with the four game series and other notes around the team. But coming up Friday a Saturday, brand new Rico Bronia, a bonus Rico Bronia, if you will, we'll have a full in-depth look at David Stearns. This is the first time I've done a podcast with Hoffman in like seven weeks because he's, you know, a big time star now doing the New York Giants. So it's good to get to talk to you. Pete. It's good to be back. And listen, I, I,
1: Will do my best to make sure that I'm on every podcast going forward. I know football season is going to be a, but I want to be here. Like it, it actually bothers me when I'm not physically here with you doing these. It's it's kind of like a passion of mine to be talking New York Mets baseball with you on a day on a weekly basis.
0: That's right, especially the New York Mets baseball that nobody talks about anymore. Like, why is Brett Beatty bunting on his own in the ninth inning of a game against the Diamondbacks down by a run? In fact, let's start there. So we'll go through all four games, and like I mentioned, Senga, Scherzer, Jet Williams being called up, the claiming of Anthony Kaye. There's a lot of aspects to get to. Game one of this series, the Mets lose to Arizona 4-3. to three. The bullpen blows, we all know it. To me, is defined by two really interesting things that happened late in this game. Number one, the idea that Brett Beatty, who has not been good since coming back from AAA, and he did suffer a groin injury later on in this series, which has been revealed to be minor, which is nice. Brett Beatty's been awful, and he made a weird decision to bunt in the ninth inning. I think that was storyline number one, and storyline number two actually became Gary Cohen and Keith Hernandez going after Lavello's decision to not hold on Tim LaCastro, And then a few days later, Brett Strom, the pitching coach, retaliated back. As far as the rest of the game is concerned, Quintana was fine. I don't think there's anything we're going to learn about Jose Quintana over the final month. It was a five-inning, two-run performance. He's he's fine. He is what it is. He's going to be in this rotation next year. He should be in this rotation next year. He's one of the only two guys that you can trust. Uh, Trevor Gott continues to suck. He blows a lead. That's handed to him a 3-2 to lead in the eighth inning. And Drew Smith continues to suck. And I think over the last two months, as we've watched the meaningless baseball, the one conclusion that we've all drawn is that there is not a damn guy in this bullpen that you can trust in 2024. There are different levels of trust, like Brooks Raley, who actually pitched okay in this game, pitched a scoreless inning, I think it was the seventh. Yeah, he'll be on the roster and he's okay. And Adam of up and down, and he's okay. I don't think any of us, you know, are falling all over each other, trusting both men, but the rest of this bullpen is garbage. You know, I had no issue with the acquisition of Trevor Gott because it was a money thing, but Trevor Gott's been awful. He's been awful. Sean Reed Foley, who I think is hurt again, he stinks Drew Smith, we're all done with. And I said this on the last Rico, every game feels like, let's take our turn with the bullpen imploding. And the Mets had a 3-2 to two lead, and they blew it late. <laughs> that's the bottom line. Now that's that's In a world in which these games matter more to us, that's the real headline, more than even Beatty bunting and Gary Cohen freaking out on Torrey Lovello. But when we get to the ninth inning, and, and this one is very, very concerning. You're in the ninth inning of a game down by a run. Brett Beatty's been a mess. There's no question. I still want to see him out there every day when he's healthy because we have to evaluate the mess. You know, whether it's a lefty or a righty, I still want to see Brett Beatty out there. He comes up after Ronnie Mauricio draws a walk in a one-run game, and he's laying down a bunt. And what made matters worse is if you're Brett Beatty, you need to know that when you're laying down this bunt to get the tying run to second base, the on-deck hitter is freaking Jonathan Aruz. And yes, it turned out to be Daniel Vogelback as a pinch hitter. The hitter after that is Omar Narvaez. Like, if you're laying down a bunt and you've got Brandon Nimmo and Francisco Lindor and Pete Alonso and Jeff McNeil coming up, fine. I'm not a huge fan of bunting down by a run in the ninth inning with nobody out. I don't love giving it out away. I don't love doing that. So I'm not even saying I would Be okay with it if those hitters were coming up, but at least it would make more sense. It comes out after the game that, as much as we may crush Buck, Buck did not call that. And that feels like a player with no confidence. That feels like a player that is admitting to you, yeah, I know I'm hitting 140 since I've been recalled. That is deeply concerning. That on his own, and it's not a winning baseball play, it's not a selfish play, you could try to selfless play, like you could try to say that to make yourself feel better, but the truth is that's a play from a guy that doesn't believe he's going to get a base hit. That's what that was. So the reason why the Beatty bunt to me is a big deal is not even the strategy of this four to three game. It's the fact that Brett Beatty thinks so little of himself right now, and I get why. He hasn't hit. He hasn't hit major league pitching. He didn't hit major league pitching prior to being sent down. Obviously, he was sent down, and he hasn't done it since he's come back up. He actually had a couple of hits on Wednesday night, the game I was at, before he got pulled with this coin injury. So he wasn't showing a mini pulse, but that was my biggest issue with his bunt on Monday. It showed just a complete lack of confidence in his own ability right now. No, and, and the problem is that you, you nailed it. I mean, he, he's looking for
1: production any which way he can. And rather than striking out, let me just try, get, get, get a piece of the ball. Let me just see what I could do. Uh, but my biggest thing is, and, and this is – I'm not saying I'm happy that he's hurt, but when Mauricio comes back from his illness, this is going to create a, a, a fight at third base, right? I mean, I look well, like Ronnie like Mauricio. He's not doing basic second base, but you're opening another spot for somebody else.
0: No question. I, I was thinking the exact same thing even before Beatty got hurt, which was we got to see Ronnie Mauricio at third base because we game plan 2024. Beatty's in a tough spot right now. It's he hasn't done enough at the major league level this season and the opportunities he's gotten to be handed any kind of job next year. Brett Beatty's got to earn it. And then the hesitation I have is okay, he comes into spring training and he earns it. What the hell does spring training even mean? Brett Beatty had a great spring training this season. Yeah, he got sent down. Then he was recalled. He actually did okay for a while. And then overall, just didn't hit enough this season. So I don't even know if there's anything Brett Beatty can do that would make you say, okay, he should be the third baseman. Ronnie Mauricio is very different. Ronnie's had a complete season down in the minor leagues. He's hit since being recalled. I mean, basically, the guy's hit for a year since the Dominican Winter League from a year ago, all Ronnie Mauricio has done is hit. He would have more of a leg up on being the third baseman next year because right now they don't have a third baseman. I mean, who's the third baseman in 2024? So you're right, Pete. Ronnie's got to play third base. We need to see what he looks like defensively. He needs the experience of being out there because here's what Mauricio has done between the Winter League uh, of last winter his monster numbers in the minor leagues, and his performance, even though brief, here at the major league level. He has earned a chance to play every single day in 2024. Does that mean DH? Does that mean third base? Does that mean second base? It certainly don't mean the outfield because they never stick him out there. I don't know what it means position-wise. That's a debate. It's an interesting discussion, but he has certainly earned an opportunity to play every day. In this inning, after Beatty advances him, Ronnie Mauricio steals third base. And, of course, Daniel Vogelbach strikes out. <laughs> because, well, of course he did. And that creates the scenario. The scenario that became the talk of the series. Omar Narvaez draws a walk. The Mets are down a run. They have first and third with two outs. They send up Timmy LeCastro as a pinch runner. And Torrey Lavello, much to the chagrin of Gary Cohen. This became like the story of the series, doesn't hold LeCastro on. He is giving Tim LeCastro second base, to which Gary is freaking out. And what I love about Gary Cohen is that when he has an opinion that he feels really strongly in, he's one of the most hard-headed guys you'll ever hear. If there's an official scoring decision he doesn't like, he's going to harp on it for five innings. I mean, can you believe they call that an error? I mean, Can you believe that? He goes nuts. He was so disgusted by Torrey Lavello doing something that I think we'd all agree feels very unorthodox, which is allowing the winning run to steal second base. Brandon Nimmo eventually flies out. Turns out not to matter. Mets lose. I gave this thing a lot of thought. This is such a baseball geeky kind of thing. But I started to ask the question of, okay, I get why Gary's freaking out. I thought the same thing. Like, why would you just allow the winning run to steal second base. And so before I even saw what Lavello said, I did research on it. I started looking at how effective has LeCastro been stealing a base? How effective defensively is the catcher behind the plate? And then overall, I started to remind myself it's 2023. Stealing bases, I don't want to say is easy, but it's easy. Guys are stealing bases at an incredibly high clip. So does that make us have to look at this situation very differently? This is not two years ago. This is not five years ago. This isn't as simple as you're allowing the lead run to steal second base. I'm a traditionalist, but you also have to admit this is a different season. This is a different world. Stolen bases are occurring at like an eighty-five percent clip. It's absurd. Tim LaCastro. I'm not even kidding you, Hoff. I look this up in his major league career is 45 for 50 in stealing bases. That, that's That's a 90% clip. You do not throw Tim LaCastro out. So the more I thought about it, not that I loved it, the more I said, I get it. Like, I get what he, I get what Tori Lavello's saying. He's saying, okay, I can hold the runner on. I don't have my defense position best. Brandon Demo can hit a ground ball towards first base. That's it. And I'm not stopping Lacastro from stealing second base. I'm not doing it. I'm not throwing him out. I'm not even going to let my catcher throw to second base because remember the tying runs on third, it's Ronnie Mauricio, who very well could just steal home as that throw is being made. Uh, if I do throw, it could go in the outfield. You could say, well, Evan, you're, you're, you're talking about playing scared. No, I'm talking about playing realistic. So by the end of the night, I said to myself, I think Lavello's right. I think Gary freaked out for no reason. So the next day, for those that watched it, Gary, I think in like the second or third inning says, hey, by the way, I want to address the stolen base thing from a night earlier. I could have sworn, wow, Gary's going to apologize. Gary lays out Lovello's points, which was basically what I just said. Because I think once you start to think about it deeper, it does make sense. The stolen is nowadays, LaCastro's effectiveness, the catcher behind the plate. So Gary does a great job laying it out. And then basically says, yeah, I still think he's wrong. <laughs> I still think he's wrong. What made me laugh, though, is that this, I guess, freak out got back to the Diamondbacks. You know, it got back to them about what was said because it was a very over, <laughs> I want to say like, it was an over the top reaction. This is the, I think Gary said, this is the most boneheaded managerial move I've ever seen. So, Brett Strom, the pitching coach of the Arizona Diamondbacks, responds. And he comes out and says, Gary Cohen and Keith Hernandez are idiots. <laughs> Here's exactly what he said I think Tory made a very, very good choice of playing behind LeCastro, despite what the really smart Cohen and Hernandez group had to say. Because I think they're idiots for what they said. I, I, I'm sorry. This is what's wrong with America. Like, seriously, this is an interesting debate. Like, seriously, I bet you, for those that are still listening to the Rico, because the Mets suck, um, there are going to be people on both sides of this. There are going to be people on it who say, Evan, you know what? I kind of get it. You're not throwing them out anyway. I know it's unorthodox. I get what Lovello's doing. And then there's going to be the old school thought of despite that, you cannot let the winning run steal second base. The fact that Gary to say it's the most boneheaded move ever, which it's not. And now Strom's response is they're idiots. Isn't that everything that's wrong with America? This is a good baseball debate. And yet both sides think the other side is a giant schmuck. <laughs> like it's a baseball debate. Once you lay it out, Hoff, would you agree it's like a 50-50 debate, a 60-40 debate? Like it's a baseball debate. I could
1: I could see both sides. Listen, I'm actually on the Lavello side, to be honest with you. I get it. I watch yeah. I watch too much Little League baseball for me to be like overcommit to that if you're not gonna throw the guy out and it's gonna cause chaos. Um, I love Gary though. I don't care like it's Gary's such a smart, I don't want to say nerd, but they he really they're they are, between him and Howie, I, what did
0: Howie have to say? I'm curious to hear what Howie said. Was he working on this game? Yeah, I, you know that's, that's a good point. I'm not sure what he said. Like I, I should go back and hear if there was even a strong opinion offered because I think in the moment, you know, with the game on the line, it's easy to say, "Wow, they're not holding him on." I'm surprised. McCaster takes second base, and then ultimately Nimmo flies out. So it's not as if the base that ends the game. Look, Gary is a is a brilliant guy, and I agree that when it first happened, I was very surprised. Like, I'm not going to act as if in the moment I thought this was brilliant. I had to give it time. I had to kind of look at it closer because I was fascinated by it and say, okay, there's got to be a reason behind it. Like, Torrey Lovello is a good manager. He's not a village idiot. There's a reason. Let's find the reason. And what's funny is the reasons I found were what he said because it kind of makes sense when you think about it. I just think it was a good baseball debate, and I still do. And I, I'm i with you, Pete. I, I'm more on the side of Lovello because it feels like stealing second base right now has become so automatic. And Tim LaCastro, and this is why he's a weapon, that's why I wanted him on the team back in spring training, he is an automatic to steal second base, so why fight it? Which is, which is
1: why I'm so confused as how Nimmo has stolen – Minimal bases this year because it is almost an automatic. What is he doing?
0: <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good question. Uh, so the Mets lose game one, game two. Uh, look, the Mets scored a bunch of runs. Pete Alonzo hit a bomb of a home run, his 44th home run. Ronnie Mauricio hit his first major league home run, which was an absolute laser beam in the fourth inning. But I think the story was Jose Budo. I think Jose Budo in a very limited amount of time, because it's only a couple of starts, has been impressive enough for me to say, okay, not he should be in the rotation, but okay, this is this is interesting. You now I, I stand by you can't read that much into what you see in September, but two very good starts in a row. Remember, his last start was into the seventh inning. He allowed two runs. This start was five innings, one run, 91 pitches, seven strikeouts. Got a ton of swing and misses on his changeup. I thought he looked good. And I think where Jose Budo is playing himself right now is into, not the rotation, but into the depth mix. You're going to need pitchers six through nine. It's just what it is. Coming into the year this year, David Peterson was one of those guys. Tyler McGill was one of those guys. Joey Lucchese is one of those guys. More on him in a second. Jose Budo ended up being one of those guys, but was not... Necessarily six through nine. He was probably like 11 and ended up making starts. His last two starts have been impressive, though, especially against this Diamondback lineup. So I don't think he's doing enough for me to say, hey, she can beat for a rotation spot, because I do want the rotation going into next year to be more firm than Jose Budo competing for a spot. But I think he's gotten, at least to me, on the radar of, okay, that's a depth guy. And here's why that matters. I don't know. I've given this thought over the last couple of days and weeks, really. We've talked about Peterson and McGill. Like, they're not it. They're not it. I think we've got to strongly consider next year Peterson and McGill being relievers. That (coughs) we kind of have to abandon them being a part of the depth, guys. I don't know if it's ever going to happen for either guy. Like, we're sitting here waiting. They're getting full opportunities since the trades. They're making starts every five days. I think the best of what we may ever see from David Peterson is a bullpen arm and considering the bullpen blows and considering as we started the podcast, there's so many guys that are not good. Peterson and McGill probably fit there. And that's, what's going to make Budo and Lucchese two of the depth guys. Now, obviously they got some pitching prospects that are getting closer. Mike Vassell had a very good start on Thursday night. He's getting closer. Christian Scott is getting closer. So right now, it's September. we got a long time before March. Budo, Casey, depth guys, Peterson, McGill, make them relievers. That's where I leave. So the only thing
1: I have to say about that, about McGill and Peterson, I feel like they're like Peterson in particular is like more crafty or tries to be more crafty because they're not lights out pitchers. They're not throwing like we don't have anybody in the bullpen besides Edwin Diaz that blows anybody away. You look at the exit velo, you look at the velocity on on these pitchers, you know, they're maxing out like their average is like 93, maybe 94. It's it's not very high considering the top of the top echelon in the bullpen. You know, Edwin Diaz is up there, but that's about it. We, I I understand McGill and Peterson you're trying to figure out what you could do with them, but they can't we can't have a bull, we can't have a bullpen of Aravino, Drew Smith, Tyler McGill, David Peterson and, and Brooks Raley and me be like, oh, we're we're locked the loader to go. I mean, I might
0: no. as well just hand the ball. I might as well throw the ball over the fence for him. No, no, no. They they need to add relievers. They, no, no doubt about it. I think that's, you know, when I think of Stearns' priorities in terms of building a winner in 24, not just transitioning with young prospects, it's a pitching rotation and a bullpen. It's your staff one through 12. You know, there are a few guys that are locks, like Edwin Diaz. He's a lock, and you hope he returns to what he was in 2022. We know about Senga, and we know about Quintana, but the rest of those 12 spots, they need to add, like, competent major leaguers, and that includes the bullpen. One other thing from this game that is a little bit of a knock on Lindor, but I'm growing accustomed to this, not just with Francisco, but with a lot of guys in baseball. Catel Marte. Tagged Lindor in the head. I don't know if anybody remembers this play. It was a very hard tag. And Lindor falls to the ground. They could not wait to hug each other. Like, it was, oh, my God, I touched you in the head. I cannot wait to hug you. And I know that's baseball in 2023. I'm going to sound like the old guy, get off my lawn. But Lindor loves every opponent. Like, every opponent he loves. I can't wait to hug you. I'm going to give you a high five. I'm going to have a conversation with you. And it is what it is. It's... does it bother me? Maybe a little bit. Does it mean anything? Not really. It's just me getting it off my chest. That's all it is. Like when I saw that with Marte and Lindor, I kind of chuckled. Like, oh my god, they could not wait to hug each other because Cattell Marte had the balls to give Lindor a hard tag in the head. Well, I mean, listen, what, what do?
1: Do you prefer seeing that, or do you prefer do you prefer seeing the Mets basically? You know tough it out and be a little bit mantro and be basically be like, dude, this is our house. Get the freak off my lawn. Basically, you know, bean people and fight, do all that stuff. And then, you know, just kind of get that. It's it's like one of two ways. They're either really too passive of a team where they're just way too relaxed and like, hey, nobody, we don't care in the world. We're just playing baseball. We're having a good time. Or they're like a, you know, like the ninety-eight Yankees. Or like, you know, when they were had those huge brawls, was it the 98 or 96 Yankees? Those huge brawls, the Red Sox, the Orioles, like they just brawl on everybody. Is that what you prefer seeing? Yes.
0: Oh, (laughs) is that what I prefer seeing (laughs) as opposed to a team that gets bullied? And that's probably why it annoys me Hey, because this has been going on in baseball for a very long time and it's not always annoyed me. I think it annoys me because this team gets bullied. Because this team has been hit 150 times, and they haven't done anything about it. And Lindor was the one who publicly said, hey, maybe a fight would be good for us. And I see a lot more of them making out on the field and the hugging opponents than I do actually standing up for yourself. And I think that's why an innocuous moment between Lindor and Ketel Marte in the midst of a four-game series in September that doesn't mean anything probably bothered me. Because the rest of the season has been and is what felt like the Mets being bullied. Well, I have a solution. It's very simple:
1: trade Jeff McNeil to the Braves or to the to the Nationals or whatever, and I guarantee you there'll be a brawl sooner or later between him. And- <laughs>
0: <laughs> that'll that'll open up the brawl. Lindor and McNeil can finally unleash <laughs> from a few years ago. Uh, game three of this series, I was very excited about because I went I actually went to the game it was. Uh, a slump I've been in because of how sick I was. Remember, I went to that one game against Texas. I left in the third inning because I was so, so screwed up. So I went to the game on Wednesday night. It was great. I, I kind of, it reminded me why, even when your team sucks, it's so fun to go to games. The place was so empty that I enjoyed it. I was like, oh, this is so easy. Going up the stairs, there's nobody around. The game's over. I go down the stairs. There's nobody around. I had to had a bathroom call in the sixth inning. Nobody's around. So it's just a reminder that there is something nice about going to the ballpark when your team is terrible. There's just nobody around. And it was a nice game because the Mets kicked Arizona's butt again. Joey Lucchese, your guy, delivered. And Lucchese, very similar to Budo, has not had a lot of opportunities at the major league level this season. Like Joey Lucchese has made seven starts for the New York Mets. Seven. Dude, look at his numbers. He's 3-0. He's got a low 3 ERA. He's had a couple of dandies mixed in there. And he was outstanding on Wednesday night. He was great. He didn't strike a lot of guys out, didn't need to. He was able to get a lot of ground balls. It felt like every ball was a ground ball to short or a ground ball to third. And he was fully in control to the point where Buck did something that really, really surprised me, especially for a guy Coming off Tommy John surgery, he allowed him to start the eighth inning with a pitch count of 91. I was stunned by it. Lucchese, at that point, had pitched seven innings. He had allowed five hits. His pitch count, like I mentioned, was at 91. It was 9-1-2 and two of the order in the eighth inning, and he kind of got screwed by Lindor. He walked the leadoff hitter, which is on Lucchese, and then he got Marte to hit a ground ball to shortstop, which could have been a double play, and Lindor booted it. And that was it for Joey, but seven-plus innings, five hits, one run that I think turned out to be unearned, three walks, two strikeouts, great performance by Joey Lucchese. He's not as young as we all think, though. He's 30 now. is that crazy? 30 years old. But that's a depth guy. That's what he is. Joey Lucchese and Jose Budo, if we're trying to learn anything from September, and more than that, there starts throughout the year, more so with Joey because he's made six of them or seven of them, he fits kind of that depth role offensively in this game. Pete Alonso drove in three more runs. Mark Vientos had a home run. Vientos' home runs recently have been impressive because he's been doing it against some really good pitching. Remember, the Mets beat up Zach Allen in this game, who is one of the better pitchers in the National League. So, nice win, fun win. When Beatty was pulled after the sixth inning, I thought it was for defense. We later find out it's a groin issue, but it's minor. When I heard groin issue, I even said to my dad that night, I said, we're not going to see him again. That's it. But maybe we will. Maybe we will. So nice victory to win game three of this series. And as far as game four is concerned, which I didn't get to see a lot of. I had it on. We were on the air. You know the deal on the air. It's tough to watch. Kodai Senga. Bow down right now, Pete, to Kodai Senga. Kiss, Kiss the ass of our God, Kodai Senga. Show the man the respect he deserves because Kodai Senga has been a tremendous New York Met. And on Thursday afternoon, oh, he's got the shadows. I'm sure the shadows are helping him. And it probably was. The Arizona Diamondbacks had no shot against the Ghost Fork. Through the first five innings, he strikes out 10 guys. He got through trouble in the sixth inning. That's when he walked the two guys. He didn't walk anybody in the first five innings. He gets through trouble in the sixth. He ends up finishing six innings, two hits, no runs, 10 strikeouts, two walks, he lowers his ERA to 2.95. He's got 11 wins if you care about that. All hail Kodai Sangam. Hail. I mean, do we... Uh, you said it earlier, so I'm not
1: I'm not stealing it. Cy Young, but then there's the potential of, uh, of the
0: Rookie of the Year as well. So the Rookie of the Year one is tough. Okay, let's start with... So- well, you know what? You want to start with Rookie of the Year? Yeah, let's we start, ro- with, let's rookie start with Rookie of the Year. Because he was one of the guys he's... <laughs>
1: Up against he just faced.
0: So it's very difficult to compare position players. Like, I don't even know how you go about doing it. Corbin Carroll has 47 stolen bases. He's got an 864 OPS. He's got 24 home runs, 69 RBIs, 280 average. He is the rookie of the year. Spencer Steer has had a tremendous season for Cincinnati, but I think what makes it difficult, look, put it this way, Kodai Senga's got a better chance to win the Cy Young than the Rookie of the Year, which is a really weird statement to make, but it's true. It, it's also just, like, like I said, it's really difficult to compare those offensive numbers and just try to compare it to a pitcher's numbers. I guess you could look at war and try to measure it that way, but it, it's, it's a complete, like it's apples to oranges. But let's get to the Cy Young. In my opinion, and I've, Crunch the numbers, I've analyzed it. Kodai Senga is third in the National League Cy Young. That's where he's at, third. Now, let that sink in if you want to take my word at it. We'll go through the numbers in a second. I'll at least try to prove my point. If you take my word for this, if I told you in March, Kodai Senga is going to be third in the NL Cy Young voting, dude, we'd be printing World Series tickets. We'd be like, wait a second. Verlander, Scherzer, Quintana, and oh, by the way, Kodai Senga is going to be third in the Cy Young voting. Remarkable. So, <clears throat> I want to give you his numbers, and you'll get why he's not the Cy Young Award winner. Like I, I can't make an argument that doesn't exist, but I can make the argument that he's third. So, right now, to me, the favorite—it's close—is Justin Steele. It is very close between Justin Steele and Blake Snell. I'm going to take wins and losses out. I don't think it matters. Justin Steele has made 27 starts. Kodai Senga has made 27 starts. Justin Steele's thrown a buck 59 in innings. Senga 155. So very similar. Steele with an edge by three innings. Senga has given up 30 less base hits, but he's also walked 39 more guys. Senga has struck out. 32 more guys. I say that because it's all in a very similar amount of innings. Senga's ERA 295, Steele's ERA 249. Half a run better for Justin Steele. So it's close. Steele's got the edge. He walks less guys. He does strike out less guys. He does put, I guess, the same amount of base runners on because, yeah, their whip. Senga's whip is actually a little bit higher. It's 1-2. Steeles is 113, one, opposing batting average, Senga's 205, Steele's 242. It is very, very close between both Senga and Steele. And Senga has the third best DRA in the National League. Steele has the second best ERA in the National League. The other guy who I, I'm sure many people would say is the favorite, I would give Steele the slight edge, is Blake Snell. <coughs> Blake Snell has made three more starts than Senga and Steele, 30 of them. He's only thrown, though, eight more innings than Steele and 12 more innings than Senga, 167 innings. He's got a 243 ERA, which again, half run better than Kodai, a little bit better than Steele. He has many more strikeouts than Justin Steele, 217 compared to Senga's 191, Steele's 159. But if you think Kodai Senga walks guys, Blake Snell says, hold my beer. Blake Snell has walked 93 guys this season, which is far and away. The most in the National League. He's got the lead, and he's got the lead by a lot. He's second in strikeouts behind Spencer Stride, who to me, ERA of 373, three, I don't want to hear about it. Like, ah, see, he's not a candidate. It's those three guys. It's those three guys. <coughs> Bryce Elders had a very good year, Logan Webb's had a solid year. Their ERAs are now in the mid threes. So it's Snell, it's Steele, it's Senga. To me, it's steel one, Snell two, Senga three. I'd understand if you want to go Snell one, steel two, Senga three. But Kodai Senga is third, to me, in National League Cy Young. Uh, Logan Webb has a lot of innings, so I can understand the, the feeling of, well, look, Logan Webb's on 193 innings. That's almost 30 innings more than Snell. It's almost 40 innings more than Senga. What about that? Fine, he's had a great year. He's also got a 3-4 ERA. So I think Kodai Senga is not necessarily in the Cy Young picture in terms of winning because I don't think there's enough he could do based on the numbers I just laid out. I guess Snell or Steele just implode and the ERAs become a lot closer maybe. But right now he's third. He's one of three pitchers in the National League with an ERA sub three, which is now sitting at 295. And if you want to go around Major League Baseball, there's only two guys in the American League with a sub three ERA in Garrett Cole and Sonny Gray. That's it. So it's sort of exclusive company for what this man has accomplished. He is not going to win the Cy Young, but I think he is third in the National League Cy Young voting. You
1: know, uh, it's just it's interesting because I I understand why you say Steele is one. I feel like they all are missing something. Like Steele's not as dominant. (coughs) Again, the the innings pitched is part of it too for Sanga. The too many walks is there, but no one's really as. Dominant and running away like Sandy Alcantara a couple last year was just straight up like there was no question about it like he was pure and the story yeah no question Cy Young there's no one that's really like you could make a case for any of those three guys and Blake Snell because he's walked a hundred freak almost a hundred batters I don't even I don't even know if you could put him two
0: yeah it's what's funny about Cy Young voting is it's all about what matters to you so normally for me innings pitched matter. If I'm looking for the guys that have thrown the most innings, it really falls towards Zach Gallen and Logan Webb. The problem is their numbers are just not nearly as good. So I I give them credit for that. I move them up a couple of notches. This is just me. I'm one guy. And Cy Young isn't an exact science. It's voters. It's what voters think are important. I always thought strikeouts are sort of overrated. I bring it up. I know it matters to a lot of people, but as long as you're getting guys out, who cares? Like, why does it matter? I also looked at whip as a little overrated too, because who cares how many guys you're putting on base? Are you allowing them to score? That's why ERA and innings pitched have always been traditionally the most important stats I look at. I know there's a lot of analytics people like to look at. I'm just looking at the results. Like guy didn't give up a lot of runs. That's your goal. Like your job as a pitcher is to throw as many innings as you can and not allow runs. I'm pretty simple. And so those, to me, are the two things I like to look at. Senga's really good with the ERA, not as good with the innings pitch, even though that's not necessarily his fault. We know how the Mets have handled him this season.
1: And to to compare Snell and Senga together, both of them, uh, Snell in particular, throws a lot of pitches out of the strike zone, which is why he walks a lot of guys. But if you look at the strikeout totals compared to innings, it's just like, how does every, how does he keep on striking out so many people? It's because his pitches are so nasty. If you're not patient enough, you're swinging at crap. And that's why they get through yeah. it. It's, it's a weird –
0: it's perception there. So I do I do get that. I, I get a little bit of it's it. All, to, to your point, this is not a great crop of candidates. Like, I admit that. And I don't even mean just by name value. I mean by performance. There have been years in which these numbers are nice. They're not good enough. The idea we're considering guys at 165 innings – for the National League Cy Young, and there's only a couple of weeks left in the season, that's a little different. But we also live in a different world. My only point to all this is that he's not going to win the Cy Young. He should not win the Cy Young. He's in the mix. He's going fi- to He's going to get, I would think, if the voters get it right, a top-five finish. Like, I say third. He may not finish third. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the writers don't give him that. But he's a top-five finish for the National League Cy Young, and that's impressive. It also leads you to Yamamoto because Yamamoto, who is significantly younger than Senga, is another guy coming from Japan. Another guy where, much like with Kodai, we don't know much about him. We can go to baseball reference. We can see their numbers. We can read what the scouts say about him. But Yamamoto, over the last few weeks, has garnered a ton of attention. He's garnered a ton of attention for a few reasons. Every major league team is watching him. Every major league team. There was a report last week that the Yankees plan to be really aggressive in going after Yamamoto, that they may offer him $150 million. He throws a no hitter a couple of weeks ago. And then if you just glance over at his numbers, cause you're curious, cause you're like, so how good is this guy? His numbers are ridiculous. Like he's got insane stats. So What are the Mets going to do? Like how aggressive are the Mets going to be? I would want them to be aggressive. The success with Kodai Senga and Yamamoto's numbers are better than even what Senga did last year. And he's thrown more innings throughout his major league career. Like he had a a year. I'm looking at it right now, 2022, 193 innings. Senga was never getting to that number year before that, 193 innings. So we had back-to-back seasons of 193 innings this season. He has a 1.20 ERA. He's thrown 150 innings this year, and he has a 1.20 ERA. He averages, you'll love this, because I think Hoff's big knock on Kodai is he walks too many guys. Yamamoto averages 1.5 walks per nine innings to go along with his nine strikeouts per nine innings. He has a whip of 0.85. What does this mean? It means he may be better than Senga, and Senga's going to be in the top five in Cy Young voting.
1: Let's go sign this man. Let's sign this man. Let's go. Senga Yamamoto. I know Otani can't pitch next year, but maybe in twenty twenty five. Let's go. I'm going all Japan. I'm all about it. Why not? They're (laughs) great. Now, now, listen. Is it? Is it? There's those stupid rumors about. Well, there's a lot of guys that won't be on the same team because they respect their, uh, you know, co- you know, their their elder states or whatever, whatever the terms I'm looking for. Where uh, they respect their fellow um, countrymen. There you go. That's what it is. native <laughs> <Right>. person. <laughs> but but uh, listen. I mean,
0: I think that's a crack of crap. Get, give them the most money, and they'll come here. Wow. I don't know if this means anything, but it's certainly exciting. According to Andy Martino, Yamamoto will be represented by the same agent as Kodai Senga and Edwin Diaz. So there's already that met connection when it comes to agency. Look, Yamamoto makes a lot of sense for a bunch of reasons. Number one is age. Most of the time when guys get to free agency, they are not 25 years old. I mean, what pitcher? Pitcher gets to free agency with this kind of resume, whether it's in Japan or anywhere else, at 25. That is completely unprecedented. So from an age perspective, you're getting a guy whose prime has not even arrived yet. Number two, I think the Mets are going to have a hesitation. This has been brought up by emailers in the past to give up any kind of draft compensation in signing a free agent. That was always going to be, the issue when Julio Urias was an option. Obviously, Julio Urias is not an option and probably never pitches in Major League Baseball again, nor does he deserve to. Yamamoto has no draft pick attachment. The only attachment he has, and I briefly touched on this on the last Rico, is the posting system. And in the posting system, you not only have to sign him, so whatever the contract is, then there's money you have to give to Nippon Baseball based on how much you give him. I don't think that's a Steve Cohen issue. I don't. And if I trust Cohen, which I do, that, yeah, they're trying to win next year, but they're also trying to win over the next few years. Well, Yamamoto is the perfect guy. He's, he's more perfect than anyone else you go after because of his age. So when I hear that the Yankees are going after him, my response is game on. Like, I, we haven't seen the Mets and the Yankees have a war over a free agent. We haven't seen it. We're going to see it eventually. And if it's over Yamamoto, the Mets better win. They better win. Because the Mets need Yamamoto, believe it or not, more than the Yankees do. You know, if I'm a Yankee fan, I'd say, great, I'll take Yamamoto. But I need offense. The reason my team has sucked this year is we can't score any runs. The Mets, while they haven't had a great offense, their biggest issue by far is starting pitching. They need to build a rotation. But very exciting. Every time I look at this guy's numbers, I get all excited. What's not exciting is that the Cubs called up Pete Crow Armstrong. So the trade that really, I think, taught Steve Cohen a lesson from a few years ago. We'll see what it turns into because now Pete's got to prove he's a Major League Baseball player. You know, That's the, the second aspect of this. Yes, he's a great prospect. Excuse me. Yes, he made a great defensive play the other day. He's got to go hit. He's got to be a great Major Leaguer. But I think that that trade has influenced the Mets over the last few years. I think the pre Crow Armstrong trade is a part of why they weren't aggressive last year at the trade deadline, which you could argue turned out to be a good thing because as much as we wanted David Robertson, and Wilson Contreras, you know, the Cubs were asking for Ronnie Mauricio. So if the Mets had said, like, we all wanted effort, let's go win a world series and made that trade, they probably don't win anything. The results are probably the same in the first round. And then Ronnie Mauricio is not even here. Excuse me. So it's tough, man. When you're a good team, and last year was a great opportunity that the Mets didn't take advantage of, uh, making a big trade deadline deal can help you win a World Series. Ask the 21 Braves. Ask our team in 2015, even though we didn't win the World Series. The Cespedes trade is the reason the Mets won the division. Obviously, if Billy would have hit one out of the ballpark, it could have changed everything last year. He had a bad trade deadline. We all know that. Darren Ruff, Daniel Vogelback, Michael Gibbons, we all know. But what also could have been a bad trade deadline is trading a prospect that turns into something for a guy that doesn't make that impact for you. Javi Baez and Trevor Williams for Pete Crow Armstrong may well be that trade if Pete Crow Armstrong turns into something. Because that's, look, that's the other caveat about these prospect trades. Even the Scherzer deal. Uh, We're all ecstatic that they got rid of Max Scherzer knowing what's ended up happening and knowing what he did for us, coming up small in every big spot. Now he's done with Texas. So, yeah, I'm glad they traded him, but Luis Angel Acuna's got to become something. If he doesn't, then great, they got rid of him. Now what? You know what I mean? Like, I, I appreciate that Steve Cohen used his checkbook to aggressively get something for Max and that's all on Cohen, if Acuna becomes something, that's on Epler. Then I say, hey, good movie. He picked the right prospect to get back. As of right now, and his numbers are not impressive at double A, not burying him, just giving you information. He has not hit very much. He is stealing a ton of bases. That trade, like, I can't celebrate it yet. I celebrate Max isn't here. I celebrate that the Mets made the right pivot, as much as it was painful at the time, as much as I didn't want it at the time, But then you need your prospects to hit. Otherwise, what did we just do? Otherwise, it's great. We got rid of Max Scherzer, but now what? Now, uh, one caveat to that, by the way. Either the prospect hits, but there's one other thing you can do. Or you trade that prospect. So, what I mean by that is, for this trade to be like a classic, Luis Angel Acuna's got to become a player. Or, if the Mets took him in the offseason... And use them in a deal for Shane Bieber. Now it doesn't matter if Acuna becomes something. Because now it's about what you turned him into. And if you turn that prospect into a major league baseball player that can help you, then doesn't matter what he turns into. So look at it that way. Yeah, turn Mac
1: Scherzer into uh, Shane Bieber. That's that
0: would be incredible. That'd be, be- that'd be pretty good, right? <laughs> Now, it's going to cost a lot more than Luis Angel Acuna, but still, that would be very, very nice. Uh, The Mets did bring back Anthony Kay. Anthony Kay was one of the arms in the Marcus Stroman trade. Uh, He's got no options left, so he's either going to be on the Major League roster next year or he's going to be DFA'd again. Unfortunately, as much as it's nice to get back a prospect you traded how many years ago for Marcus Stroman, there's no evidence Anthony Kay is going to be a good Major League. He has not been a good Major Leaguer. He has not been a very good minor leaguer. So there's really not a lot of hope that this is going to turn out to be some kind of steal. Uh, and lastly, the double-A, the watch, man, they got all their prospects down there, including calling up Jet Williams now to double-A. And they're going to be playing a playoff series against the Somerset Patriots, also known as the Yankees. I do question one thing, and I may as well question it now. Luis Angel Acuna since the Mets acquired him, has played shortstop and second base. Jet Williams has been playing shortstop and center field. Can we have them play more positions? Like, shortstop is nice. Great athletes play shortstop. But they're kind of set at shortstop. They're kind of okay there. So with Acuna and Williams, who are now closer to the major leagues, they're in double-A, I just want to see more position versatility. Like, in the case of Acuna second base and shortstop, I, those positions may not be available. Now, the hope is Acuna is a super utility guy. He plays everywhere, so he plays every day, and he plays like every single outfield, outfield, outfield. The Mets are going to need these guys, and Jets doing it in center field. They need these guys to play more outfield. I think that's going to be very important over the next couple of Yeah, years. you know, I, I've heard stories that left field is wide open. <laughs> you know, maybe they want to get a shot. Have you heard that one? A <laughs> uh, couple of emails to the Rico B, the Rico B at gmail.com. Lucas writes, Evan, I know this is meaningless. By the way, everything is meaningless. Okay, we're at the stage of this season where, I mean, everything we just talked about for the last hour is it re- it's meaningless. So, what are we talking about? Lucas writes, I know this is meaningless, but do you have any clue why the great Brody Van Wagenen above wind in Windbreaker in this photo? He sent me a photo. Being behind home plate at City is happening so frequently; it shouldn't, but it bothers me. Long live David Stearns. So, yeah, he did send a picture. It does look like Brody Van Wagenen sitting in the first row. He's an agent; like he represents guys. I think he represents some Mets. I, I don't, I don't care about Brody Van Wagenen. Like when I think about his tenure as Met general manager, it was such a meaningless. Uh, it's just the yeah, that'd be the word. Even though he did make an all-timer in trading for Edwin Diaz, we have to give him some credit for that. Even though we didn't like it at the time, I don't know. I don't have an ill will towards Brody Van Wagonen, but yes, he is sitting behind home plate at City Field. Dave Clyde writes, and now we know why Pete isn't signed yet. Oh, now we know why. I was told he's a bad guy. Isn't that what we were all told? Were they simply waiting for David Stearns to give him the courtesy of making a decision about what to do with Pete Alonso? And were they shopping him around the trade deadline just to be able to give Stearns some data about his perceived market value so that he has more data when it comes to negotiating with his agent? <coughs> um, I've always found it kind of weird that you have a new team president who's clearly going to make these decisions and yet you were making significant moves at the trade deadline without his input, assuming the Mets weren't back-channeling David Stearns. I think in the case of Scherzer and Verlander, I think Steve Cohen made the decision and said, look, this isn't working. Let's go get prospects, and whether David Stearns is my president or not, this should be our game plan. So I guess I don't have an issue with that, and you're just trusting Billy is going to get it right with the prospects, that he picked the right prospects. The Alonzo deal being done, if they had traded him without Stearns, I agree with you, it would have been nuts. Like, that one is extreme. That's got to be a David Stearns decision. Obviously, I got my opinion on it, which I'll make very clear in our David Stearns podcast, which we will be posting in 24 hours, depending on when you're listening, maybe less. But yeah, the idea that they would have ever traded him before Stearns would have been weird. And finally, Jimmy Curdy writes... <coughs> Always taking what Buck says with a grain of salt. I like what he said about asking Mauricio what position he envisions playing in his career. After all, the only reason he's not the Mets' top third base prospect is because he's labeled a shortstop prospect. He may be their best second best prospect as well. Second base prospect as well. Buck's comments also had me revisit my feelings on George Kirby's post-game comments, which I was with the masses on, but flipped for two reasons. For those that don't know, George Kirby did something that I was stunned by. He stayed in a game, struggled, I think, in the seventh inning of that game. And when asked about his struggles, said, eh, thought I was done after 90 pitches, which was an inning early. Like, he did the opposite of what you want a pitcher to do. He was basically questioning why his manager didn't take him out of the game, which is nuts. And I also think unfair because George Kirby is the kind of guy that goes deep into games. So it, it creates a perception of him that may not be really fair. Kirby has since apologized, apologized to Scott Service, but those comments made waves, and that's the context of Jimmy's email. All right, so let's get to what Jimmy has to say. Pitching prospects are told what they can't and can't do. They are micromanaged every pitch. They are on pitch limits for years. This generation of starters have been told they aren't as effective after 90 to 100 pitches or the third time around the order. So why shouldn't the pitcher believe what he's been told for years by the very team who developed him and get angered or confused when they go against everyone and everything he's been taught? It's, it's a great point, by the way. If players are told over and over again, not going to face a guy third time around, pitch counts at 90, like that gets ingrained in their head. Of course, they're going to then think, well, I threw 90 pitches, I'm done. I should be out of the game. And so for service to go beyond that, which he should, it's a pennant race. I don't blame Scott service for it, but then you have to question, well, yeah, no wonder the pitcher thinks he's done. He's been told his whole career. He can only throw 90 pitches. Jimmy goes on to write real quick. I'm sorry, Pete. I'll finish the email. Then your thoughts on all this. Think Syndergaard and Harvey questions decisions they made earlier in their career. They never got their big payday. Wheeler's career was derailed two years by Tommy John. He was lucky to get his payday. Jake, too. But not, but that's not the norm. In an age when reliable fifth starters make 12 to $15 million a year, I don't expect a young pitcher to hand every decision over to a manager who's read a couple of minor league reports on their development. For better or worse, it's a new world of baseball. Very good point by Jimmy.
1: Go ahead. Jimmy. Well, first of all, Kirby's situation, I think his biggest issue is how he responded. It wasn't that, hey, I was shocked that I had to go back out there. I thought it was done. It was... They asked if they going They had a conversation. He goes, "No, but we're going to." And it was kind of that was kind of dickish how that came right. off. Right. Uh, but but everything else, I think up until that point was fine. <clears throat> Here's the thing is though, we've seen. I mean, you talk about the they the Java Chamberlain rules, the you know how Strasburg and Harvey and all those pitchers went through you know specific innings limits and pitch counts and all this other stuff, and it doesn't make a difference. They still get hurt. They still I mean Strasburg is fighting over uh, you know retiring and, and fighting over a contract because he can't pitch anymore he's done and it's. it's they tried to do everything right so I, I mean I don't understand when you you're allowed to break the rules why you're allowed to break the rules why these rules were put in place you talk to some people it's like dude the best thing for you is just keep on pitching
0: right other right. people
1: say something different so I I, the, I, I don't know the science <laughs> behind it anymore. I think it's almost like a, a complete reset of, like, let's approach it differently.
0: It's There's a lot of things going on here. I think pitchers throw harder than they ever did. And I think that's why there's so many more injuries. So, start with that. They're going max effort more often. So, even though we're protecting pitchers more than ever, and we feel like it doesn't even help because... Everybody's getting hurt more than ever. I mean, guys are getting hurt at such a crazy rate. There are so few reliable starters in baseball. It's such a short list. Like, even thinking about our Cy Young candidates, Justin Steele came out of nowhere almost. I mean, we remember him last year, but to be a Cy Young candidate, like, there are very few guys like Garrett Cole who you can rely on. So I think there's a lot of reasons why we have more injuries. I don't think just letting guys throw is necessarily going to fix it because if they're throwing at max effort, and we're just letting them pitch. They're gonna get hurt either way. Mets take on the Reds this weekend. I do want to point out before you watch this weekend, what happened to Ellie De La Cruz? I mean, the guy was basically anointed the king of baseball. He's down at two thirty-five. He's got a seven hundred nine OPS. Sometimes we anoint guys way too quick, just a little bit too quick. But we do have a three-game series against them. David Peterson is going to pitch Friday. Tyler McGill is going to pitch Saturday, and then Jose Quintana is going to pitch Sunday as the Mets play these three games against Cincinnati, now sitting 10 games under 500. Depending on when you're listening, it may already be posted, but Friday and a Saturday, a podcast focusing on David Stearns. Who is David Stearns? Should we be excited about David Stearns? What is David Stearns going to do? What does David Stearns think about Showalter? What is David Stern's resume in Milwaukee? We'll examine all of it on a very special David Stern's edition of Rico Bronia. We do appreciate you downloading and listening. You can email the pod the rico b at gmail.com. Rico, or as it's called, I think in promos, Rico Bragna. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Rico Bronia.